This is the Balancing Act by Security Compass, your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast of the Balancing Act from Security Compass. I'm your host, Altaz Vellani. In these podcasts, we try to share insights and advice from expert practitioners and thought leaders. A big thank you to all our listeners out there. If you happen to have a topic that you'd like to hear about, or if you'd like to participate in a podcast, please send us an email at insights at securitycompass.com. Once again, that's insights at securitycompass.com. When we talk about threat modeling, we often think from the perspective of a security expert. In my interactions with different communities, I'm seeing a growing interest in helping developers engage with threat modelers. Joining me today is Vaibhav, who's the Executive Director for Cybersecurity and Privacy Research and Public Policy at Comcast. Welcome to our podcast, Vaibhav. Thanks so much, Altaz. It's really great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in your current role at Comcast? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an academic by training. So I uh, did my PhD research at Indiana University, and um, I worked on uh, essentially how do you communicate uh, complex security risks to non-experts. So mostly working with people over 65. So um, I I always wanted to have a research role um, at at some point in my life. Uh, So when I started a Comcast about five and a half half years ago, I was hired to do cybersecurity public policy. And um, um, about a year into that role, there was an opportunity to create a a research and development function. And um, I decided to take that on um, um, with my background. So that's pretty much how it came to be. So we started uh, about four and a half years ago with one person on my research team. And, um, uh, you know, we've we've been essentially, you know, pushing our products since then. It's been uh, getting good adoption within the company. So we've gone from having one person to um, having basically uh, 14 people on my team. I am hiring just in case any of your listeners want to, uh, you know, are looking for a new role. Fabulous. So let's just dive right in here. Many organizations today are embarking on a threat modeling program that includes developers. Now, historically, this has not been the case. It's usually reserved to a security team that will conduct some kind of threat modeling in the design phase. Why do you think we're seeing this type of shift towards developer centricity? So there is uh, there's a recognition that we need to reduce the total cost of ownership for first party code. And one way to do that is to try and push security um, in the left-hand side of the development life cycle. Uh, so as much as we can you know, build security in by design rather than bolt it on, uh, the, the cheaper it is to you know, build in security. Uh, the, so it, with that in mind, think a lot of companies have decided to um, engage developers in the threat modeling process so that as they go through the threat modeling process, they kind of recognize uh, the different ways that, uh, you know, particular architecture can be exploited. And so that then becomes a part of their muscle memory. And then, you know, hopefully going forward, they don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, 
I think the other piece of this is also getting developers to recognize that um, security is just another aspect of quality of code. Uh, so it's, um, um, you know, it's like anything else, like, um, you know, the, the time it takes for your code to run. Um, and developers themselves are also slowly recognizing that, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that is uh, an aspect of, of their job. Um, and I think the other thing that has happened is that there, there's a lot of tooling that has become available. Um, and, and recently that's, uh, you know, that's been, that's made it easier for developers to adopt some security practices as part of the, you know, the CACD pipeline, rather than, you know, having security as like a tangential thing that they have to do after the fact. So th there's a lot of different pieces that are evolving at the same time, which are getting, which is getting developers more engaged in uh, security overall and in third modeling in particular. Mm, that's fascinating. You spoke about so many different angles there. Uh, maybe we can start to tease out a little bit of that as, as we go through this in the time that we've got. Uh, Developers are typically focused on speed, on automation and the CI/CD pipelines, as you were mentioning. And historically security was seen as a blocker or something that slows down our releases. Uh, in, in your opinion, if you approach a developer and you want to make threat modeling appealing to developers, You'd mentioned, uh, you know, threat modeling will in fact make improve the quality of your code. Are there other things that you've seen that makes it appealing to developers? I'm sure there are many in our audience that would would want to understand what, from your experience, have you used to try and bring developers in and try and bring threat modelers into the development environment as well. Yeah. So um, a couple of things. There's one is. Um, not all tooling needs to be sold as security tooling to developers. Um, so one of the challenges that I often hear about is that it's, it can be hard to get developers to give you uh, a high level system architecture diagram on which to do the threat modeling. And what we are realizing is that that high level system architecture diagram is not just something that we need for threat modeling. You need it for requirements gathering. You need it for a bunch of other things. So as we are building our own tooling uh, to help people build that system architecture diagram, we are not selling it as a security tool. We are, uh, we are not marketing it as a security tool. We are marketing it as a requirements gathering tool. Um, and you know, the, the, it's, it's the, the output of that is something that we can um, uh, create as a JSON object or you know, we can, make it into anything. So it could be a PDF file, it could be a JSON object. So depending upon the consumer, you know, they can consume it in whatever format they like. So that's one, not everything, you know, you know, I think looking at what is the broader pain point and then seeing whether that, if by solving that broader pain point, can you also create a security use case that, that always helps. The other thing is, uh, you know, as developers, to your point, are um, you know focused on automation and speed and CI/CD pipeline. Try and build security tools that will sit within that CI/CD pipeline. So I'll give an example of um, we built a tool X GitGuard. Um, what it does is it scans um, uh, GitHub repositories uh, to identify. Um, uh, passwords, API keys, and tokens. Um, and um, 
the delta compared to all of the existing tooling that is in the market. Most existing tooling uses regex. Our tool uh, uses ML, and it just has a significantly lower rate of false positives. But it is still an after-the-fact scanner. So you know, once someone's pushed a password uh, or API key or token into their repo, we pick it up after the fact, and then we send them a notification and we let them know, hey, you should be doing that. So, so it, it is still outside of the CICD pipeline, right? So what we did was we built a pre-receive hook. So as you're making a push, uh, a pull request, that's when you get your alert right, uh, you know, in real time. So you don't then have to go back and fix things. You can fix things as you're building them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, th- those would be two things. Not everything has to be a security tool or marketed as a security tool. And then the other thing is, if you do have a security tool, um, you know, ideally put it in the CICD pipeline. Yeah, interesting. And when we talk about the CICD pipeline, if we can just go a little bit deeper, it, it really... Um, is about this um, ability to go in there and to produce these incremental changes, right? And it's it's based on all the change that's happening uh, sort of a, in a broader context. If you look at threat modeling, it contains its own vocabulary, its own techniques, its own knowledge bases, its own tools. Um, and all of these are continually evolving. We have new threats that are emerging and, and so on. And, and we have a similar experience in the development domain as well you know, which is also continually evolving, you know, just, just even from the tooling side or from an architectural perspective and things like that. Uh, are there things that a security team can do to help these uh, developers participate in the threat modeling in the midst of all of these changes, right? Oftentimes we might see, for example, a sprint zero, um, uh, you know, where, where there will be some of these discussions taking place and, and really bringing... Uh, in a very tangible way, the intersection of where developers are and where security folks are. But what's been your experience? How do you how do you bring developers to to in into the fold to to get them to participate in the threat modeling process experience itself? Yeah. So um, so one thing is to uh, make sure that the tooling that you're building is something uh, you know that the developers are comfortable with. Uh, usability becomes a big factor, mm-hmm. and uh, security engineers are not usability experts. And I, I don't think I, I think you know th- there's a lot more that can be done uh, to address usability. So fortunately, on my team, I have a background in usability. My head of research has a background in usability. Um, you know, one of our researchers has a background in uh, in design. So uh, you know, we are uh, much more attuned to that need. Um, so, for example, as we are build, so we are working on a machine-assisted threat modeling tool, and it's based on an open-source tool called Thragile, um, which I recommend people would go check out. Uh, so one of the reasons we've decided to um, um, you know, build on top of that tool is that as an input, that tool takes in YAML files. And YAML files are something that a lot of developers are already familiar with. They're, they're, you know, they're creating them for you know, infrastructure deployments anyways. So, so, so they don't have to you know, go and learn something new. They, they can basically work off of their existing knowledge. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, in, in terms of usability, your tooling really should have um, very little noise. Um, so with, um, 
some threat modeling tools, you know, you can run into this challenge where, you know, it gives you, um, you know, a thousand or, you know, 5,000 threats as an output. So it becomes very difficult to then go back and address that because essentially what it's saying is, do you have a server? If you have a server, then all of the threats that are related to a server may apply to your application. But if you look at Thragile, Thragile uh, as input takes a lot of other contextual information. So comparatively speaking, it gives us very, very few threats as an output. Um, so you know we recently did a threat model where we, we got um, 13 uh, threats as an output. So 13 is something that I can actually walk through and you know, see whether that's applicable or not. Now, the flip side of that is that because Thragile uh, requires a lot of additional contextual information, so it creates that overhead for someone to provide that information. So that's where as the, uh, you know, as, you know, as we have built, that's where what we are trying to do is we are trying to automate the creation of input of Thragile um, because we have a lot of telemetry and a lot of logs that, that we collect from other sources. For example, OS query, we have lots of logs in OS query. Uh, so we don't have to ask the developer for each piece of information. You know, if, if the system is deployed, we already, I mean, at a very high level, you can say that, you know, um, well, how many IPs does the system have? Right. And then you can look at your asset inventory and say, well, what assets are deployed on these IPs? So I can start to, you know, fairly easily build a high-level system architecture diagram using that information. And I can look at the OS query logs, I can look at FQDNs and start building that out. So, so automating that, that generation of the input for the threat modeling tool um, also helps. Um, and then one final point I know it's been a long answer is uh, one of the other things that we're looking at is creating templates. So for the most part, you know, in most organizations, you are going to have, you know, for, you, you're going to have a fairly finite number of high-level deployment architectures, right? Um, so our approach is just create a template for, for those architectures and then focus your threat model on deviations from that architecture. So sort of almost like a, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of like secure design patterns, right? So you have like a secure architecture diagram that, you know, that's already been threat modeled. And then, um, you know, when you go for threat modeling, you ask your development team to say, well, which of these architectures most closely aligns with what you've built? Um, and then it also creates an incentive for deployment teams to say, well, why don't I just start with that architecture? And uh, that way I know that that, you know, that one's already been, you know, vetted and validated. So when I go into my threat model, I won't have to spend eight hours. Maybe I'll get out in two hours. Um, so really just figuring out different ways to reduce the amount of overhead for your threat modelers and you, so that you don't have to engage them on the input gathering side. You just engage them when you have those findings uh, that you can uh, discuss. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about the reduction in time, and even uh, trying to leverage existing threat modeling and, and the mitigations that came out of that in subsequent projects, for example. So we're not repeating the same thing. Yeah. It, it kind of ties into lean and, and value creation. And some of these concepts now begin to intersect 
Um, let me ask you something. Uh, from your experience, how do we measure and align the, the value of threat modeling across the different layers of an organization, right? We have project teams that are executing. We have program teams that may be overseeing various projects. Um, so project team, program teams, and even all the way up to the executive level where there may be a mandate to uh, manage cybersecurity or compliance or manage risk. Uh, and, and some of this ties into that. But how do we measure and align threat modeling and the output from threat modeling and the value across each of these layers. Do you have any thoughts or insights into that? Yeah, so I mean, so I, I'm not an expert in this because my, my job is really to build tools, but there, there's a few things that we look at. Um, so one is if, if, if your threat modeling is going well, if you're doing a good job and um, you, you should see fewer issues down the line, right? So you should be issuing fewer patches. You should have fewer findings and pen testing. Uh, you should have fewer you know, security um, reports from third-party researchers. So those are metrics that you can see. Um, and then you can also look at you know, how threat modeling is uh, evangelizing security with the development community, because um, ideally, when you are doing the second threat model, or you know, so you did a threat model on application one with development team one, right? And then when you do a threat model with the same team on a different application, ideally you would not see a repeat of the same kinds of issues. So you should, I think, keeping some some of those statistics and tracking them not so much on a month-to-month -month basis, but tracking them on a year-on-year-out basis, you'll start to see. Uh, whether you're seeing some changes from a developer side and then more importantly downstream and pen testing and things do you, do you see a reduction there mm, interesting um, so so let's now take a step back uh, you've been doing this for a while um, you've seen some of the benefits you've experienced some of the challenges in your opinion where do you see this trajectory that we're experiencing around um, sort of developers and threat modeling? Uh, where do you see this headed in the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months? So I, I think the, the main innovation is really in the machine-assisted solutions. There, there is a lot of tooling that is coming out. Um, the, the, the main sort of... Uh, Limitation of these uh, solutions that I've seen is that you still have to provide a lot of input um, to, to these tools. So it's not like uh, you know, they're pulling in data from you know, other sources to generate that input for the threat modeling tool. So I think like that's the next innovation that you would expect um, to see if you know, someone can combine you know, different telemetry tools with the threat modeling tool. Uh, there are... Uh, some kind of, um, you know, your, uh, the big four, what they're doing is that they're taking a threat modeling tool and they're taking RASP tools and combining those and offering them as a service solution. So the RASP tool will produce telemetry and that, will, that they'll write some scripts to convert into uh, the input for the threat modeling tool. But there should be no reason why that just doesn't come as an overall package because RASP tools themselves have, you know, people have some concerns about the overhead that a RASP tool will add. Um, 
And there, there really shouldn't be a need to have another monitoring tool to collect all of the data because most companies are collecting a lot of telemetry anyways. Um, so I think that that would be that would be the next evolution because what we really want is not a point in time threat model, right? You want what you want is an ongoing monitoring solution, um, and that I think is right now missing from the market because you the threat modeling is largely manual. You need uh, a whole threat modeling team to come and uh, sit and do the threat model, and that's not a scalable solution. That's very interesting. Um... So, you know, we've spoken about so many different things today, and um, I'd like to bring this to a close. Uh, but before I do that, uh, you'd mentioned earlier that you are hiring, you're looking to bring people on your team. Uh, if any of our listeners might be interested and want to reach out, what's the best way that they could participate in this process to sort of uh, be a part of your team? Oh, absolutely. So uh, there's careers.comcast.com. So all of our jobs are posted there. If you just search for a security research engineer or a privacy research engineer, uh, those are uh, those are one, positions on my team. But you can also just drop me a note at uh, babhov underscore garg at comcast.com. Um, either one of those uh, would work. And uh, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll see uh, uh, get to see some of your uh, listeners. Wonderful. There you have it, folks. Thank you so much for your time, Vivov. Really appreciate it. It's been a privilege to engage with you. And I thank you for sharing your insights with all of us in the community. Thank you so much, Alpaz. That was great. To all of our listeners, once again, thank you for listening in. We invite you to listen in next time on the Balancing Act podcast from Security Compass. If you have a topic you'd like to hear about, or if you would like to participate in a podcast, please send us an email at insights at securitycompass.com. With that, I wish all of you a wonderful day. Thank you.